All right, question for you this morning. Let's just go ahead and get this thing started. What is the most reproduced religious artwork in history? Anybody know? The religious, the most religious artwork. Mona Lisa, you're close. You're close. The Last Supper. The Last Supper, yes. I was um, reading about the Last Supper this week, and I want to share with you this morning what I read and discovered about the Last Supper. I, th- I thought about, well, do you see anything missing? There's no mysteries here, but this is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, and I want to read to you what I discovered what might possibly be missing. In 1498, Leonardo da Vinci drew one of his most famous portraits. We call it the Last Supper. He was overwhelmed in joy and excitement at his new artistic masterpiece. But before he made a public display of his artwork, he invited a close friend to come and, clo- to come and preview his artwork. His friend came, his friend accepted the invitation, and together they viewed the artwork together. His, his friend's attention was drawn to one detail in particular, the cup in Jesus' hand. His friend commented to Leonardo, he says, uh, the chalice is beautiful. What a beautiful cup you have crafted. Glimmering, precious jewels wrapped in ornate and polished gold. And his friend says, listen to what he says. He says, that cup is truly worthy to touch the lips of Jesus, his friend said. After the, after the meeting, da Vinci was so distraught and so disturbed by the comments, he quickly and with no hesitation brushed away the golden chalice with a paint stroke. Later on, when his friend saw the altered painting, He asked Da Vinci, he says, why did you remove such an elegant part of the portrait? Da Vinci's response, Leonardo Da Vinci's response was, nothing in my painting shall attract more attention than the face of my master. Da Vinci wanted his viewers to behold the true beauty and majesty of the centerpiece, Jesus Christ. And to that I say amen. Amen, because That is the ultimate goal of the church. That is the ultimate goal in your Christian walk, is that you see clearly who Jesus Christ is. That you see him for all he is. And when you see Jesus for all he is, you will love him. You will cherish him. He will be nothing, there will be nothing more important. As Peter says in his epistle, he will be precious to you. When you understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So many times in ministry, um, we want people to see the value of Jesus. And we'll tell them, hey man, come check out my church. Come check out our programs. We dress casual. Look at everything we have to offer. Now there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with having cool things, having ministries, and having all these activities. Matter of fact, I highly encourage them. Encourage them. But what we're really saying when we invite people into our church and we say, hey, man, come check out all the stuff we're doing, what we're really saying is we want you to see the value of Jesus. We want to get you into church, and we want you to see the exceeding great value of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to take your eyes off of the chalice and off of the, all the small stuff 
and look at the centerpiece of our faith, which is Jesus. Do you, under, do you understand this morning the value of Jesus Christ? Do you understand? Let's take a look at last week's message. Today's message is really kind of like part two of last week's message. But last week's message, we talked about why Jesus is worthy of it all. Why do we need to see the picture clearly? Because this is who Jesus is. We learn about who Jesus is from where? The Bible. The Bible presents us with the clear truth of Jesus Christ. And we learned last week in, in those five verses that he is our deliverer. He, he delivers us, the scripture says, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his light. He is our redeemer. That word redeemer means he purchased you. He bought you back. He paid a price. Salvation is a free gift, but it cost, it cost God a lot. It cost him his son dying on the cross to buy you back. Jesus Christ is deity. He is Lord. He is God Almighty. These are the things that you got to understand to rightly understand Jesus and to get it and, and, and to understand why these men went to their death is when you understand these things. This is why the, 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 all but one of the disciples um, died a martyr's death except for John. They died knowing and believing these things. He's the creator of the universe. Everything out there, the universe is endless in every direction from planet Earth. He is the creator of all that. And then finally in Colossians 1.17, Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. He's the sovereign Lord. He is the, uh, the sovereign creator of the universe. So this week's message, if you, didn't, uh, if you were here last Sunday, go back and catch it. But today you're going to get part two. So right now, what we're going to do is I am showing you the value of Jesus, showing you that he's worthy of it all, and we're just going to build on number five. We're going to build on number five. We're going to, we're going to go to, I think, six and seven in our, in, our, in our study this morning. So turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, we'll be uh, picking up where we left off last week, which is verse 18. Colossians 1.18, picking up, Paul is, um, there was a Greek philosophy that was coming in and creeping into the doctrine of the church, and Paul is expelling, is getting rid of that Greek philosophy, and he's showing them who Jesus Christ clearly is. Look at verse 18, he continues, he is also the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, in this one verse, we have two more profound statements on the value of Jesus Christ, which we will add to them. It's number six and seven. Uh, in, in verse 18, he uses the phrase, if you look at it closely, it says, he is. He is, and then halfway through it, he is, again. And then finally, He'll say, so that he. But let's look at this first two he, he is. The first one there is, he is the head of the body. He, and that's, that's number six, I believe. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church, of the body of Christ in the earth. The pope is not the head. The, the elders are not the head of the church. And guess what? Pastor David's not the head of the church. Man, when I understood that truth, it just brought me a great sigh of relief because that's a lot of pressure to carry. 
that I am incapable of. But Jesus is because he is God and because he is sovereign. And he has that ability to carry the whole church, not only Calvary Chapel Irmo, but all the churches in the Columbia area, all the churches in our state, in our country, around the world. That's how great our Jesus is. He is the head of the, of the body of Christ. He is our shepherd. He encourages us. He corrects us. He is, as I, as I like to say, being an old military guy, he is our commander-in-chief. He, he's the head man. And notice this, he says in here, he says, we're called what? The body. We're called the body. What a name he gives us. What is a body? A body is a living organism. It's a living organism. And who, who tells the body what to do? The head. The head controls the body. What a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the king and, and, and Lord and, and head of the body. And he tells the body how to live and what to do. The body in the earth, the body of Christ, is not buildings. It's people. It's people that have been born again, that follow Jesus Christ. And there's this, there, the Holy Spirit is in them. The body is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus Christ is ultimately the head of. And he has given the church these gifts of pastors and elders and leaders and, and teachers to, to facilitate and, and to submit to his word and to the leading of the spirit and, and, and carrying out the functions of the body in the earth. So that's number six. He is the head of the body. Let's look at the seventh one. The seventh one is also in verse 18. It says... Um, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning of what? What's he the beginning of? He's the beginning of the church. You know, there was a point in time in history where the church didn't exist. There was, there, there wasn't, church didn't meet on Sunday morning. Uh, wh when did it start? It started, some people would say, on, on, uh, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. But actually, I, I go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that first Easter morning. Where Jesus Christ was dead, laid in a borrowed tomb. The disciples were in shock. They were paralyzed and they were in fear. And early that Sunday morning, the father reached down and raised his son from the dead. That is, that is what I believe. And then later on that, that same night, later on that evening, the, the, the Bible says that, uh, that Jesus went to his disciples and he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That, he says, he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the foundation of Christianity. He was dead, but the Father raised him. And guess what? Death has no hold on Jesus Christ. He lives forever. He has an eternal body, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, living in an eternal body, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he lives throughout all eternity. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever but but here it is he's the firstborn from the dead that phrase means he he rose from the grave he leads the church because he is risen from the dead he conquered death he conquered the grave this is why i am a christian this is why you are a christian today this is why you're at calvary chapel irmo because a long time ago the father raised jesus from the dead and started this story of redemption that's gone on for 2,000 years. Where God has transformed millions of people through the power 
of the gospel. This, the, the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's risen from the dead. Man's greatest fear, fear or unknown or mystery, death, has been answered by the God that we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he continues in verse 18. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And here it is. Paul makes a transition. Look at the first two words in, 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 in verse 18. He says, so that... There's a transition here, so that. In light of all these that you see up on the screen, in light that he's our deliverer, our redeemer, our Lord, our God, our, our sovereign Lord, the head of the church, here it is, guys. Here's, the, here's what Christ is telling us this morning. Look at verse 18. That he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's the NASB trans, uh, translation, to have first place. Actually, I like the NIVs better. The NIV translation says, so that he will have supremacy. I just like that word. So, supremacy. The King James Version, the ESV Version, uses the word um, preeminence. But all of them mean the same thing. And all of them mean this, that Jesus Christ is first in your life. That he is first in your life. Now, some people will say, well, why should Jesus be first in my life? If someone who doesn't understand or doesn't know what the Bible says, they have no, no clue or they don't understand their Bible, and you say, Jesus Christ should be first place in your life, they're going to be like, so? I mean, I don't, I don't see the point. I don't see why. Why should he be most important in my life? Because of what Paul just laid out in Colossians chapter 1. And, he's and Paul is telling the church at Colossae, you don't need these Greek philosophies. Colossians 2.8, we'll, we'll, we'll hit this verse next week, but Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition rather than on Christ. He says, you don't need those. All you need is Christ. What does it mean that he's first place in everything? Jesus Christ is exclusive. He's utterly unique. No one is like him. He is, um, he is beyond all people. He is beyond all people. I mean, let's look at this for a minute. Where else can you go in life and find a deliverer? Where else can we go? Where can, we, where can I find someone or something or something that will, that will deliver me or redeem me? There's no other place you can go. Nothing else, no one else offers redemption. Where else can you go to find and understand uh, the true Lord, the true God? Where else can you go? It's in Jesus Christ. Who wants to understand the mysteries of the universe? The rings around Saturn, all the planets and the galaxies, the Andromeda galaxy. How do we understand all that? How do we see that? Who is behind all that? There's, you know, people, people think that's a mystery, but it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery if you go to the Bible. Jesus Christ is the creator. Where, do, where can we go to find out who's the head of the church? Who's the head of the body? Jesus. Do you see how he's unique? No one is like him. He, he is beyond all people. That's who Christ is. That's who Christ is. And, and, and God calls us, in light of what you see on the screen here in Colossians chapter 1, he says, hey, make him preeminent in your life. Make him of the most supreme value. And when you understand these, he will be everything. He will be your joy.
he, he, he will fill your heart with joy, and you will have complete and utter satisfaction in him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go to verse 19. <laughs> verse 19, he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I believe Paul's writing this verse in verse 19. He's writing it in, in response to the Gnostics. Gnosticism was a Greek philosophy that tried to marginalize Jesus. They, they, tried, to, they tried to say Christ was just a, um, an emanation of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is, is lesser in deity. And Paul is saying here emphatically in verse 19, no, he's not some lesser God. He's not some lesser deity. He's fully God. Jesus Christ is fully God. He's completely sufficient. He's all we need. He is God. If you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have everything in life. And, he, and, and the fullness uh, of God dwelt in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some theologians call it the hypostatic union. He was 100% God, and he was 100% man. You have a difficult time understanding that? Find it difficult? Welcome to the club. But it's true. That's who Jesus Christ is. Uh, verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of, the cross, of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Boy, this part, this part of scripture right here is um, the greatest reason to me that Jesus is worthy of it all. When, I, when, I, when you read verses 20, 21, and 22, I see amazing value in Jesus Christ. I see him for what his purpose was. The, the, the greatest reason that Jesus is worthy of it all, his value, is this, is that he died on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven. He addresses, he addresses our greatest need. Our greatest need is not self-esteem. Our greatest need is not in making a name for ourselves. Our greatest need in this life is finding out how to be forgiven. I mean, what do I do with my sin? You know, I, I know it was with me, man. I was, I was just covered in blackness when I came to Christ and all my sin. And Jesus answers that ultimate question of how do we find forgiveness? People will ask, um, why do I need Jesus? People will ask that question. And, 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 and sincerity, why, why do I need Jesus when our neighbor asks, why do I need Christ? Why do I need him? You know, we could turn the question around to help them understand, at least to help me understand. And that question is this, have you ever told a lie? That's a violation of the ninth commandment. And those who tell lies are called what? Liars. Have you ever stolen anything, regardless of its value? That's called stealing. That's a violation of the sixth commandment. The seventh commandment says, um, you shall not commit, uh, it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus said, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful thoughts commits adultery. The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. And, 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 and I look at God's law. The um, third commandment says, um, you shall honor his name. And I think about all the times in life where I dishonored his name. And I used his name as a filth word. Is a word of disgust. In the Bible, and there's a promise to that. It says, God would not hold him guiltless who uses his name in vain. Okay, I, me, David, Pastor David, 
I looked at God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and it showed me what sin is. Sin is, a good, solid, biblical definition of sin is found in 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4 says, and I like the King James Version, the KJV translation of this verse, which it says this, it says, sin is transgression of the law. But anyway, going back to this, going back to the law, when I understood that I had violated those commandments, it broke me, it crushed me, it humbled me, and it made this glorious good news that we're looking at, the gospel, it made it awesome. It made it awesome. Because when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, he forgave me of everything. All that lying, all that lusting, all that stealing, all that dishonoring my parents. He, he forgave it all. He forgave it all. That's why Jesus went to the cross. It's not because we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. Or not so we can have love, joy, peace, and lasting happiness. Or not so we can experience some wonderful plan uh, for our life. But Jesus died on the cross because we had violated his law. And, and, and we needed a savior to, to redeem us from breaking his law. That was why he went to the cross. It says, um, having made peace through the blood of the cross. My friend, no matter, no matter what you've done in life, no matter how many, how many sins you've committed, no matter how, how bad, and mine was really bad, but no matter how far you've gone, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. You have peace with God. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of Scripture. That was, that's the promise of Scripture. And we have peace. And also he says in verse 20, I've got to make sure you see this too. It says, and through him, the very beginning of it, and through him to reconcile all things, all things. He's going to reconcile all things. He's, he's initiated a plan of reconciliation for human beings, and that's the cross. But then he says he's going to reconcile all things. One day, the Bible says, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And he's going to eradicate sin. And there's going to be eternal life. It's going to be an awesome planet. It's going to be an awesome universe that we live in because he is going to remove. He is going to reconcile all things. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where sin is no more. Amen? So that's verse 20. Verse 21. Verse 21, is, this, is, uh, this is good. You know, we, we call the gospel good news, right? The word gospel means good news. Well, it's good news. There's only good news if there's bad news. So let's look at the bad news. Verse 21. It says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. My friend, this was me before Christ. This was me before Christ. We call this total depravity. We were, I was lost. I was lost. And I want you to notice in verse 21 the three areas that, that the Apostle Paul breaks it down in. I, I call them our position, our mind, and our actions. Verse 21, he says, it says, you were formerly alienated. This is talking about our position before Christ. We were completely separated because of our sin. The, the, it was broken. There was a wall. We weren't connected with God. We were cut off. It was like we were on a, we were on a different planet. We were separated because that's what our sin did. 
And then in verse 21, he says, uh, and hostile in your mind. So after our position, it's our mind. We're hostile in our mind. Even our thought life before we came to Christ was in rebellion to God. I dreamed up before Christ, this mind had one thing on it. It was how to gratify my flesh. How to gratify my flesh. It was all about me. It was all about I. It was all about what I wanted to do and not about what Christ and serving Christ. So after our position, our mind, in verse 21, our, our actions. He says, you are hostile, excuse me, hostile in my, here it is, engaged in evil deeds. He says, you're engaged. In other words, before I came to Christ, Pastor David, he was plugged in. I was plugged in to that flesh. And I'm going to be honest with you. Before I came to Christ, I was not miserable. I, I was not miserable. I enjoyed my sin, as a matter of fact. I, I, I looked forward to my sinful lifestyle. I, I enjoyed it. I, I was living life and doing my thing and living a very sinful, rebellious life. And then I heard the gospel in 1992. And I remember that preacher, Pastor Ron, preaching on the cross. And I remember thinking, you know, it, it was, I was like, I need that righteousness that he's talking about. I knew I don't have that righteousness that he was talking about. I knew I wasn't trusting in Christ. And so that was what, what brought me to the Lord, was I knew that I needed a Savior. I, I needed someone to come in and redeem me, to deliver me, to rescue me. <laughs> I needed someone who was the head of the church and he was the firstborn from the dead. I understood that, and it made the gospel glorious good news. But he says here in verse 21, we were engaged in evil deeds. And if we're honest, that was all of us. That was all of us. That was me anyway. That was me. I was engaged in my evil deeds. I, I loved them. I enjoyed them. I lived there. But it wasn't until I understood the gospel that I said, you know what? i got to leave this old life. There is nothing there for me. Amen? Verse 22. He says, before I read this verse, I, I mentioned a while ago that the, the word gospel means good news. And in order to understand the good news, you got to understand the bad news. The bad news is, is we're totally depraved. We're lost. We're a sinner. And the bad news should always precede the good news. You know, you, you need to understand where you're going in life. You need to understand how bad things are before how good they can become. So verses uh, 20 and 21, he's given us the bad news. Now look at the good news. Verse 22. It says, and he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The good news, the glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins. And everything that we've ever done can be under the blood, can, can be taken care of at Calvary. What does the cross do? According to verse 22, what does the gospel do? The gospel of Jesus Christ, when you repent and believe the gospel, he says in verse 22, he says uh, in the second half, in order to present you before him holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Why are we holy and blameless and beyond reproach? Is it because of our good deeds? No, no. It's because Christ is in us. 
It's because Christ is in us. I don't, I, there's no, the, the only thing that's good in me, the only thing that's holy in me, is only for that which Christ has done in me. But, but, we're, but we're saved through the cross. That's the glorious good news. And then he says, in order to present you. You know, in other words, Jesus Christ has come. He's served us at Calvary. And now he's saying to the Father, these are my children. I present them to you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Not because of their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness that I gave them through the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. Verse 23 he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which I was, which, excuse me, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I call this verse our response. Our, our, our response. You know, there's a, there, God calls for a response to the gospel. You know, it's not just... Say a prayer, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and go on and live out your life and go do your own thing. No, no, no. When you become a Christian, there's a response. Let's look at it in verse 23. He said, well, number one is that you continue in the faith. You know where to continue in the faith. How do we continue in the faith? Studying your Bible, going to fellowship, spending time in prayer, carving a time or part of your day out and just spending time with the Lord. Spending time and, and yielding and submitting to him and, and continuing in the faith. And then it says, be firmly, it says in verse 23, firmly established. We're to be firmly established. In other words, don't be moved. Don't let your faith be shaken. But be firmly established on the rock of Jesus Christ. And, and don't let nothing move you from the hope of the gospel. And the, the third part of our response there is uh, that, that we be steadfast. That we be steadfast. Be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord is what the scripture says. Carve a time out of your schedule and do something for the Lord. Whether it's reaching out to a neighbor, reaching out to a loved one, inviting them to church, spending some time with children or doing things with your family. But do things that are productive for the kingdom. Be steadfast. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal. It will go on forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. This gospel is an unshakable kingdom. It's an unshakable kingdom. And because it's an unshakable kingdom, he tells us to, be, to continue in the faith, to be firmly established, and to be steadfast, awaiting that blessed, glorious hope, the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 24. Now we get into verses 24 through 29. The Apostle Paul is going to describe his ministry. He's going to describe his ministry. Very interesting. He says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Be a little, it can be a little challenging verse there. What's he talking about? My sufferings and my afflictions. You know, remember the, the Greek philosophy was everything heavenly was good, everything earthly was bad, and that, would, that led to later on Gnosticism where people would um, afflict and, and would hurt themselves and inflict pain to, to suppress the body and, to, and to, to lift up the spirit. Is that what he's saying? No, not at all. Not, not at all. 
When Paul's talking here about suffering and afflictions, what he's talking about here, he's talking about what he's going through. He's talking about his imprisonments. He says, what I'm going through here, church at Colossae, what I'm going through here, Rome, because he's in prison, by the way. He's in prison writing this letter we're looking at. What I'm going through here is for your advance. My imprisonments, um, my beatings, the persecutions I'm going through, it's all worth it. It's all worth it if I, can, if, if I can win you guys to Christ and get the church firmly established. That was Paul's entire mission, all three missionary journeys. And even the trip to Rome where he's, where he's incarcerated. He said, hey, life's going to serve lemon. I'm going to make lemonade, and I'm going to preach the gospel here at Rome. And we know that uh, he won many to Christ there at Rome. We know that 300 years later that, uh, that Constantine was won over. And Christianity became the official religion, but it all started with Paul being in Rome. But, but going back to his suffering and afflictions, ministry can be tough. Ministry can be challenging. But guess what? It's worth it. It's worth it. And whoever you're ministering to, whoever you're reaching out to, remember, no ministry is ever in vain. No ministry. You may not see no response. You may be having a Bible study with someone. You may be trying to disciple someone. And you don't see a whole lot of fruit. That's okay. You just stay faithful. You just stay faithful to what God has called you to do and the ministry he's called you to. And God will do what? He'll, he'll pour the water on it. He'll cause it to grow. He'll cause it to grow. Even through the tough times, man, just stay faithful to the people you're reaching out to. Stay faithful in ministry. Verse 26. Wait a minute. Verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardships from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. This was Paul's job. This was Paul's job. His job, his mission in life was to bring the truth, to bring the truth, to preach the word, and to win people to Christ. And that should be our job, not just the pastor's job. You know, one of the foundations of the Calvary Chapel movement, if you go out and listen to um, some of Chuck Smith's teaching, is this. Is that the pastor equips the body. He equips the body, and then the body goes out and, 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 witnesses, and, and, and witnesses to people and brings in the lost. It's not just the pastor's job to go out and win people to Christ. It's everyone's job as a believer to go out and share the gospel but Paul says here his concern was that he preached the word of God you know when 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 pastors when pastors and leaders are faithful to the scripture and they preach the word and they deposit it into the body it will produce fruit I've seen it for years it will produce fruit just by doing what we're doing right now by you understanding and soaking it in and got your Bibles open, you're reading it with me, and we're, we're looking at why Jesus is worthy of it all, it will produce fruit. And don't let no one say it won't. And don't always look at the outcome. You know, we don't judge, we don't judge ministry based on the outcome. We never, ju- never judge ministry based on the outcome. We judge ministry based on faithfulness based on faithfulness and our commitment to doing it God's way and letting him do the work because he's ultimately the one that does it, not us. Amen? Paul's going Paul's to allude to that in the very last verse. Verse 26, 
That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been, been, been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This whole idea of a church, it caught Israel off guard. The mystery is Christ in the Gentiles. That, that was the mystery. The mystery, um, verse 27, whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, is, is not only is it the church um, being established in the, in the new covenant in the New Testament, but what is it? It's Christ in you. The God of the universe dwells inside of us by the Holy Spirit, the hope of glory. That's the church, guys. That's you and I. That's the early church in the first century. That's the church in 2019. It is, is, uh, we are the uh, ones who have the hope of glory, Christ in us. Verses uh, 28 and 29. Verse 28, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is the challenge of the church. This is the challenge to the church. This is the challenge to pastors. This is the challenge to leadership. This is where we want to take people. This is where we want to take Christians. That it says, verse 20, that we may proclaim him. Who is him? Jesus. And then it says, the NASB says, when we proclaim it, it says admonishing. That word admonish means to challenge, warn, encourage, and teach, and present every man complete in Christ. What does it mean to be complete in Christ? Is the question that this verse will pose to our minds. And, the, and it is this. To be complete in Christ, it means that you've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, you've put him on. You've received him as your Lord and Savior. And, and you're, you're following him and you're trusting him. And that's just the beginning. When I came to Christ, I didn't understand everything about Jesus. I remember clearly I came to Christ. I was trusting in Christ. But then I began this journey of understanding and studying my Bible. And, and the, the second thing, what makes a person complete in Christ, is that we understand who Jesus Christ is. There it is. And there's the verses out next to it. That's who our Jesus is. That's, that's, that's what I believe, anyway, makes a person complete in Christ, is when they understand these deep, rich, biblical truths of who Jesus is. When we, when, we, when, we, when we study the Bible, when, when, when we understand these things, a person is complete, um, that we, it says in verse 28, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Uh, um, I believe a believer is complete when their foundation is solid. And they get that foundation for life. They get that, that, that foundation for Christ. How do you, how do you uh, make it? How do you... Get men to be complete in Christ, I believe, by doing what we're doing now. By me, from one beggar to another, to saying, hey, man, go to the Word and look at what it says right here. And see how he's our Redeemer and our Lord and our God and, and the firstborn from the dead. From, from one beggar to another, man, that's what I present to you. That's how you can become complete. 
That's how I, I that's, that's my goal in, in presenting to, in my presentation to you guys is that you understand the gospel, that you understand who Jesus Christ is, that we proclaim him, admonishing every man and, and teaching with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Jesus Christ. There's our goal. There's our agenda. Let's wrap it up. Verse 29. Uh, Paul says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. The Apostle Paul is very careful in, in Colossians chapter 1 to go back to saying, Hey, I'm working hard in time, and, and, and it's very challenging, you know, these imprisonments, these beatings, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit working in Paul. And we cannot forget, church, that as we go about in ministry, that we need the Holy Spirit's help. We need the Spirit of God to come in and energize us, to drive us, to push us in our ministries. If we do it in our own strength, we will become weary. We will become tired, and we will wear out. Have you read everything that Paul went through? He went through a lot. I mean, all those, the, the beatings and imprisonments and the stoning at Iconium and everything he went through. I'm sorry, man, but if that was me in my flesh, I, I, I'd have been like, okay, God, I think I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and I'm just going to sweep the temple or I'm going to just serve in the local church under James. But what enabled Paul to go and to do the ministry he did was it was the power of God. He says, for this purpose also I labor, here it is, striving according to his power, which works, which mightily works within me. we got to have that. we got to have that or else we'll burn out. We'll, we'll burn out. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for what we've learned in Colossians Lord, help us to um, just to love you more, Father, to understand you. Father, I pray that um, I've sown seeds into people's hearts to make them hungry for the Bible, to help them to go home and search, things, search these things out for themselves. And Lord, uh, help us in, the, in these new ministry endeavors at DJJ and these other outreaches, help us to have that vision. We want to make people complete in you and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.